five former presidents teamed up. It's really nice that they can all be there together having fun and help us. Why aren't you helping us? Come back. Yes, please. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in From the Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. In Oregon on 91.7 KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 KSO in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we are on WLRI 92.9, out in Maui, Hawaii on KAKU 88.5, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1, in Palinville, New York on 102.9 WLPP, in Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV 102.3, in Washington, D.C. on 105.5, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe on your internets every day on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Workforce Rising, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker. All around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Glad to have you here today. Uh, I think I've said this before, Desi. Uh, hi, Desi Doyen. Hello. Uh, but uh, no, not that I've said hi, Desi Doyen <laughs> before. But I've said elections matter. Elections matter. Elections matter. I cannot say it enough. Elections matter. And there's a big one coming up in the great Commonwealth of Virginia for governor in less than two weeks. And we will head up to uh, Capitol Hill to speak with a reporter who has uh, been following that race, uh, following one of the candidates and who has uncovered some troubling details about one of them that one would think might be bigger news for a whole bunch of a whole host of reasons right around now. We will get to that shortly. Uh, But, you know, does we had John Nichols on uh, the show, John Nichols from The Nation. Yes. A few weeks ago uh, to discuss a report that he had written for the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation, I think is what it was called, about what he described, if I remember correctly, as Trump's dangerously coherent agenda. Remember that? Oh, yeah. And uh, well, I so so John was on the show and he explained his uh, what, what his reasoning was for claiming that, yes, Donald Trump may be dangerous, but his agenda was very coherent, very cohesive. Uh, and afterwards, we post the show as we do at bradblog.com and uh, Daily Coast and, and iTunes and so forth. And I heard back from some people who scoffed in response. Now, I don't know if they heard the actual show, but they saw the headline. And, and they commented and on, they commented. on the dangerously coherent agenda. That's right. And uh, they, they sort of scoffed. They said, well, Trump, dangerous? Yes. Coherent? No way. Well, 
All I can say is pay attention, people. Uh, you know, I think that, uh, and, and John made the case, Nichols made the case, but he was absolutely right. It seems chaotic. It seems like it makes no sense. Seems like Donald Trump is making things up as he goes along. I think all of those things are true. It is chaotic. He does seem to be making things up as he goes along. However, however... Yeah, well, however, his agenda and that of the administration, of his administration, I, if you look at it, it's extremely coherent. It is a classic what I will call neo-Republican agenda. I won't call it conservative, as so many other folks in the media fall for that trap of calling it conservative. It's not conservative. There's nothing conservative at all about uh, you know, increasing uh, by billions of dollars what the federal government is going to have to outlay because you hate President Obama, so you canceled the uh, the 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 premium, uh, the the subsidies, the cost sharing reduction payments in the uh, in the Affordable Care Act, which will you know take away health care from billions of, from millions of people, but it will increase the federal deficit by billions of dollars. That is not conservative. So anyway, I won't use that word, uh, at least when I can help it, to describe these guys. Uh, we'll call it neo-Republicans. And what they are doing is classic neo-Republican. It is basically George W. Bush's agenda, uh, except with the uh, smart, erudite, uh, educated, political political artifice removed without all the pretty words and the nice pictures i know and of course it's ironic that i'm describing george w bush as educated but that's what it is removing all of that you have the exact same agenda it is everything frankly that a wingnut could want period it is right-wing corporatism period it is religious right dogma period it's just you know that's what it is from top to bottom never mind all the all the noise all the tweets all the fights what they are doing is classic uh republicanism the the simple version of course is people some some people choose to see it undo anything that was done during the obama administration and yes that is what they are doing they are undoing absolutely anything and everything done by the obama during the Obama administration, including, by the way, uh, Trump even wanted to rename Denali, Mount Denali, uh, if the Alaska senators had let him. Did you see that story, Desi? <laughs> I did. It made me laugh out loud. I mean, remember, this was the uh, the, the largest uh, mountain in uh, the United States. Right. Um, and it was used to be named Mount McKinley. But finally, during the Obama administration, Obama listened to the Native Americans who, you know, that land originally belonged to and restored it to its original Native American name, Denali. Right. Mount McKinley had been named after a, a U.S. president from Ohio, who, who I don't believe had ever stepped foot in. He never did <laughs> step foot even in the state of Alaska. Yeah, much less on the actual mountain. So, uh, and so, of course, uh, Trump over the, when was it, D- during the campaign, he said, President Obama wants to change the name of Mount McKinley to Denali after more than 100 years. This is a tweet. Great insult to Ohio. I will change it back. <laughs> And so apparently uh, Anchorage Dispatch News reports that the, uh, uh, the, the the two senators from Alaska, Dan Sullivan and Lisa Murkowski, had had a meeting back in March with Trump. And uh, according to Sullivan, anyway, he said he looked at me and he said, I heard that the big mountain in Alaska also had also its name was changed by executive action. Do you want us to reverse that? 
He called it the Big Mountain at the time. I'm sure he couldn't remember either Denali yeah. or Mount McKinley. Uh, and Sullivan reports uh, that uh, Senator Murkowski and him jumped over the desk and said, no, no. No, And stop. Trump couldn't understand why. And uh, Sullivan explained, well, the Alaskan Native people re- uh, named that mountain over 10,000 years ago. Denali was that name. So, he, you know, he's been even willing uh, and eager to do that if... Obama did it. He wants to undo it. Well, fine. Undo everything that Obama uh, did. Everything. And after that, do everything that the George W. Bush administration had ever tried or dreamt of doing. For example, keep a refugee from another country from obtaining a legal medical abortion here in this country, a legal constitutionally protected procedure. Hold her in custody until she is forced to give birth. We've got some good news, at least on that front. And that's something that would be, you know, classic George W. Bush. Uh, Some good news uh, on that front. The immigrant teen held in federal custody who had sought to obtain an abortion has uh, had that procedure, according to her lawyers today. The uh, AP reports that the ACLU said on uh, on Twitter that the 17-year-old had the procedure on Wednesday. The full U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Um, had cleared the way for that procedure. The teen had illegally entered the U.S. back in September and learned that she was pregnant while in federal custody in Texas. Of course. Your home state. Uh, She obtained a a state court order, however, permitting her to have that abortion. But federal, federal officials, despite the state court order, Never mind states' rights. Didn't did, Those so-called conservatives used to pretend they cared about state rights. That's why I don't call them conservative. Anyway, uh, federal officials had refused to transport her. Federal officials from the Trump administration would not let her go get this legal... Uh, const- Medical treatment. Legal constitutional uh, yeah, treatment that she was entitled to. Or temporarily release her so that others may take her to get this. That even though the girl had reported that her sister was abused back by uh, in her own home country by her parents when she became pregnant. So federal officials, Trump officials, were hoping to send that girl home to that family to deal with this pregnancy or otherwise force her to give birth do everything use law enforcement to actually prevent her from doing this even though the court said uh you know that she has every right to do so so uh, what what trump is doing these are his officials these are his agencies it is very coherent no matter how much the trump administration is being viewed as some kind of aberration from the republican norm it is not That's what the Trump administration is doing. It is a totally coherent, if objectionable, to progressives agenda. Still dubious? Well, then there is this. There was a huge win late Tuesday night for Wall Street in Congress. Remember, hey, wasn't Trump the guy who pretended to be running against Wall Street? Unlike that big Wall Street shill Hillary Clinton? Well, I've got to tell you, the folks who fell for that should uh, feel even more like suckers and chumps and rubes and patsies today. 
Old crib from the New York Times here. Senate Republicans voted on Tuesday to strike down a sweeping new rule that would have allowed millions of Americans to band together in class action lawsuits against financial institutions. The overturning of this rule with Vice President Mike Pence breaking a 50-50 tie in the Senate will further loosen regulation of Wall Street as the Trump administration and Republicans move to roll back Obama-era policies enacted in the wake of the 2008 economic crisis. Remember that? That banking meltdown precipitated by fraudulent home mortgage schemes by the big banks, by Wall Street, that uh, brought the world banking structure to its knees, brought, brought the economy to its knees. Remember that? Well, the things that were put in place to try to prevent that from happening again in the future, that is what Donald Trump and the Republican Party are doing everything they can to unwind. By uh, defeating the rule, the Times reports, Republicans are dismantling a major effort by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the watchdog, the CFPB, that was created by Congress in the aftermath of that mortgage mess. This rule was five years in the making, apparently, and it would have dealt a blow to financial firms over their questionable business practices, allowing people to sue them for those practices. For decades, credit card companies and banks have inserted arbitration clauses into the fine print of financial contracts to circumvent the courts, bar people from pooling their resources in class action suits by forcing people into private arbitration. The clauses effectively take away one of the very few tools that individuals have to fight predatory and deceptive business practices. Arbitration clauses have derailed claims of financial gouging and discrimination in everything from car sales to unfair banking fees. The new rule had been written by that newly formed Consumer Bureau, the CFPB, which was set to uh, and, and it was set to take effect in 2019. It would have restored the right of individuals to sue in court. Those individuals who signed contracts either didn't read the fine print on those contracts or, uh, you know, read it and had no choice, had nowhere else to go. You want a credit card? You want a, a loan? A loan, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, financial firms and their Republican allies in Congress in recent months have been mobilizing to defeat this rule that was put in place after five years of study. But under the Congressional Review Act, Republicans had uh, roughly 60 legislative days to overturn that rule. The House had passed its own resolution to do that in July. Uh, it was a little bit harder to get through the Senate. Uh, leading up to the vote, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, he had sponsored legislation to protect military members from being forced into arbitration. He said he would not support a repeal of the rule. Uh, so good for him because he voted against this. He and John Kennedy of, of uh, Louisiana were the only Republicans to vote against it. All the Democrats voted against it. But uh, for all the complaints from guys like Bob Corker and Jeff Flake and John McCain, etc. All of those guys, they all voted for it. They all voted to take away your right to sue when you get screwed by Wall Street. By deceptive and predatory practices. They've basically given immunity to the banks. Right. That's right.
And now Trump is uh, is expected to sign this uh, to sign this legislation. So uh, looking to head off repeal, Democrats and consumer advocates had branded the effort as a gift to financial institutions like Wells Fargo and like Equifax. Remember when Equifax got uh, hacked just weeks ago? Oh, yeah. Remem- actually, it was months ago they got hacked, but we only learned about it weeks ago. And pretty much everyone in the United States had their uh, their personal information stolen via this hack. And if you wanted to find out if you had your information stolen, you had to sign an arbitration clause with Agreeing Equifax. Agreeing you would never sue Equifax yep. for what they did to you. Right. So this rule would have made that sort of thing illegal, but... You know, Republicans and, uh, you know, Donald Trump, who is uh, totally going to clean up Wall Street. (sighs) Democrats had argued that the rule, which uh, Republicans have now voted to kill in both houses, was was needed to protect the rights of vulnerable borrowers. (laughs) Uh, it's just Orwellian, the, the language that they were using. Regulators. Then. Well, no, no, that was actually Democrats. That was Democrats oh, who I'm were sorry. saying, yeah, to protect the right. I know it's hard to keep track. It really is. Regulators and judges, including some Republican president uh, appointed by Republican presidents, by the way, uh, have backed this position that this takes away the rights of vulnerable borrowers. Richard Cordray, the director of the CFPB, the Consumer Bureau, founded after the uh, Republican meltdown of the world economy back in 2008, said tonight's vote is a giant setback for every consumer in the country. As a result, companies like Wells Fargo and Equifax remain free to break the law without fear of legal blowback from their customers. Draining the swamp of those uh, Wall Street uh, big bank swindlers. Am I right, President Trump? Got your veto pen ready? No? The Times reports that the measure now heads to uh, to President Trump, who is expected to sign it. In June, the Treasury Department, Trump's Treasury Department, had issued a report accusing the CFBB of regulatory overreach by putting this rule in place and calling for Trump to have the right to remove its director. They wanted to give the right to the president to just fire the director of the of the entire agency. This week, the uh, Treasury Department weighed in directly on the arbitration rule, I believe for the first time, warning that the regulation could unleash frivolous lawsuits costing financial firms some $500 million in legal fees alone. After that report came out, Cordray, who heads up the, uh, the uh, CFPB, the Consumer Bureau, sent a letter to Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin expressing surprise at the report, noting that uh, during his agency's work on uh, arbitration, remember they have been working on this rule for five years, that they're just, boom, unwinding. Uh, During all of those years, the Treasury, quote, raised no issues or concerns with the Bureau about it. Not until this week. Cordray's tenure is uh, ending, by the way, at the Bureau. He uh, is expected to step down soon to run for governor in Ohio. He was appointed by Obama back in 2012 to a five-year term. Uh, so that was uh, his his term was ending in any event, uh, and now he's going to be probably running for governor in Ohio. And then Trump will be free to install his own appointee to head up the Consumer Bureau. How do you think that's going to work out? 
The Time notes that the move is expected to defang what had been one of the financial industry's most aggressive regulators, the CFPB. And they weren't all that aggressive, by the way, but they were all we had after the last time uh, these very same folks had melted down the world economy. The rule was the first major check on arbitration since the Supreme Court in uh, back in 2011 and 2013 had allowed this sort of arbitration uh, requirement to happen. Uh, the, then after that, these clauses appeared in literally tens of millions of contracts. The consumer agency was therefore specifically mandated to look at arbitration under the Dodd-Frank financial law that was passed in 2010 that created the CFPB. They did that, and they put out a 728-page uh, report on it. Among the things that they found was that these arbitration clauses uh, blocked people from suing. And when that happened, almost nobody went to arbitration at all. They just did not bother. Uh, the results of for those who did try to sue apparently were terrible during the two-year period that was studied. Only 78 arbitration claims, 78 arbitration claims resulted in judgments in favor of consumers. And, of course, those arbitrators are uh, determined by the companies themselves. The vote on Tuesday, uh, Times reports, left many Democrats dismayed. Sherrod Brown, Democrat of Ohio, said that Republicans had betrayed ordinary Americans by voting to take away rights from customers. The Senate voted tonight, he said, to side with Wells Fargo lobbyists over the people we serve. Well, why would Democrats be dismayed by that? Why would they why would this be confusing at all? This is what Republicans do whether you're for it or against it, don't be surprised by it. Don't be uh, hypnotized by this notion that Donald Trump is some sort of, oh, he's he's not a, a classic Republican. He's not an ideologue. He's against, he's for the little guy. He's the populist. He's, he's going to, uh, you know, not let Wall Street get away with this nonsense anymore. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? This is exactly what Republicans... Even those who pretend they are against uh, corporate corruption and cronyism when they're running for office, this is exactly what Republicans do when they are in power. So, yes, elections matter. Elections have consequences. And guess what? There's a big one, another big one coming up in just over a week in Virginia for governor to replace the outgoing Democrat Terry McAuliffe. This should be an easy win for Democrats uh, in this atmosphere to avoid the kind of complete capture and takeover by a George W. Bush Trump Republican that we are seeing at the federal level. But, well, you know, elections in the U.S. We're going to talk about that uh, after this break with someone who has been following this election and one of its candidates very closely. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence, because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. 
Yes. Don't make us wait. Welcome back to the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Don't make us wait, Virginia. Come out this year. You've got an election coming up in uh, just uh, just over a week at this point. Yes, elections matter. And with all of the political sturm and drong in Washington, D.C. of late, and what will and won't be the consequences of the 2018 midterm congressional elections, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that there is a big election coming up in just over a week in the, in the state, the Commonwealth, I should say, of Virginia for governor. In an atmosphere where Republican takeovers of gubernatorial mansions uh, across the country has coincided of late with very hard shifts to the political right, just take a look at Wisconsin, North Carolina, or any number of such states, the race for governor in Virginia takes on even more importance for progressives hoping to stem the tide of the utterly corrupt Trumpian Republicanism, which, as it turns out, tracks very closely with classic George W. Bush Republicanism. That, despite Trump's pretense before uh, uh, being named the winner of last year's presidential election, that he had some intention to drain the swamp of establishment republicanism. Virginia's gubernatorial elections are held in off years following presidential elections and are thus often regarded as bellwethers for the next year's midterm elections and a response to the current White House occupant. The Commonwealth's current outgoing governor is Terry McAuliffe. He is a close friend of the Clinton family and a former chair of the DNC. Running to take his place is Virginia's current lieutenant governor, Ralph Northam, against former Republican National Committee chair and close friend and advisor to the Bush family, Ed Gillespie. Northam has been the favorite, but the polls... Just a, a bit over a week out from that November 7th race are reportedly tightening. According to the Virginian pilot, Democrat Ralph Northam's lead over Republican Ed Gillespie in Virginia's gubernatorial election appears to be shrinking. And the race is statistically too close to call. According to a poll released last week, Christopher Newport University's Wason Center for Public Policies poll found that Northam... Virginia's lieutenant governor was favored by 48 percent. Gillespie, a communications consultant and longtime GOP activist, is favored by 44 percent. And the uh, libertarian candidate, Cliff Hyra, an attorney, uh, is favored by 3 percent, with 5 percent of the likely voters still undecided or would not say. That 4 percent, uh, that 4 percent point difference between Gillespie and Northam is within the poll's error of uh, margin of error of plus or minus 4.2%, meaning the race essentially at this point is too close to call as candidates are reportedly bombarding the airwaves with television ads in Virginia. The survey from Wason is the third in a series of tracking polls ahead of the election. In two of the Wason Center polls conducted in late September and early October, Northam led Gillespie by six or more percentage points. So, as they note, uh, his lead, the Democrats' lead there, is now shrinking. The two major party candidates together have reportedly spent some $11 million on television ads and special interest groups 
such as the National Rifle Association, Americans for Prosperity, that's the Koch brothers' outfit, and the Virginia Education Association have bought at least another $2 million in ads. But with all of the unprecedented, really massive corruption and complete corporate capture of policy and regulatory agencies at the federal level in Washington, D.C., under the Trump administration, remember when he said he was going to drain the swamp? Of all of these uh, of all of these guys, that was darling. With all of that, there has been surprisingly little attention focused nationally on the fact that a longtime corporate lobbyist, Ed Gillespie, is the Republican nominee for Virginia governor and could well win that race. Journalist Mike Stark, however, has been following the Gillespie campaign and highlights some troubling concerns about Gillespie's corporate lobbying ties during his years with the George W. Bush administration. Stark writes this week that Ed Gillespie, the Republican nominee for governor in Virginia, avoids the word lobbyist while on the campaign trail. Instead, he employs euphemisms like, quote, when I was in government relations or when I did public policy work. That's what he, used when he uses when he talks about his shilling for big banks, for big tobacco, for big energy, for big pharma. Gillespie's doublespeak, Stark writes, is a transparent attempt to obscure his actual history as a bona fide corporate lobbyist. But if Gillespie's work as a lobbyist embarrasses him enough to try to avoid talking about it, his work as White House counselor under George W. Bush is even worse. Stark says an examination of the White House visitor logs from during the Bush administration reveals several meetings that Gillespie took with former clients and colleagues from his previous work as a bona fide K Street lobbyist. What happened next, as they say, is disturbing. Joining us now to discuss his findings is Mike Stark. Uh, Mike is a reporter for Share Blue covering the Ed Gillespie campaign in Virginia. He has for a long time been covering Capitol Hill and driving officials nuts with the questions he asks on behalf of progressive outlets such as Stark Reports, Daily Coast and Climate Activist. Mike Stark, welcome to the broadcast, sir. It's been a long time since we've talked. Hi, I'm at Share Blue now, so uh, I don't think we've talked since I, I, I took that job. No. It's been pretty fantastic. They've put me on the uh, Gillespie campaign, and it's, uh, it's, been, it's been a ride. Uh, uh, I, apparently it is, and you detailed uh, some of that ride, and I want to talk about uh, some of your reporting here because it is, uh, well, let's say troubling. You, you did some uh, deep diving into those uh, White House logs from 2007, and you found at least two different disturbing incidents that I want to ask you about. But you also mentioned uh, via email uh, for those of us old enough to remember the Enron scandal, which haunted the uh, the George W. Bush administration in its in its early years, uh, Gillespie used to be known around D.C. as Enron Ed. Really? Yeah. Well, he's still known as Enron Ed. It's what, it's what his buddies called him. But look, let me let me tell you how I met Ed Gillespie. Uh-huh. Uh, actually, I met him by going to a house party. I wanted to do some research on him, and I listened to his stump speech. And he gives a really good stump speech about being for all Virginians and, and all the rest. Mm-hmm. It just really obscures what he's done with his entire life. So the second event I went to 
happened at a kind of stylized town hall. He was calling them the Inform Ed Informed Tour. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, because he had seen me at the house party, I think, he called on me to ask a question. It was actually the last question of the event. And I said to him, Mr. Gillespie, during the 1990s, it had emerged that Big Tobacco had been lying about what they knew about cancer, and they had been manipulating nicotine levels in cigarettes to keep people addicted, and they had been using cartoons to market to children because that's where they saw profits growth. Mm-hmm. I went through the Internet Tobacco Library, and I noticed that you were one of their key staffers, one of their go-to staffers when you worked for Dick Army on the Hill. And then when you left the Hill, you became one of their top lobbyists. Now, take me through the moral calculus it takes to accept a check <laughs> from Big Tobacco, knowing all of that. And he provided a whole bunch of word salad that included a lot of words like government relations work or public policy work. He definitely did not like the word lobbyist. And that's how I know he doesn't like the word lobbyist. Ah. So this is a really, really slippery character. And I've been following him since then and calling him on uh, various degrees of hypocrisy. But specific to the article you've brought up, you know, one of his former clients was Southern Energy. And I know because you do the uh, Greencast mm-hmm. at Bride Blog, I know you know who Southern Energy is. Oh, they're yeah. they're uh, just one of the worst polluters in the United States, if not the world. Right. They paid Ed Gillespie's firm $720,000 for Ed to lobby for them against, you know, EPA regulations. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't want them. It would have cost them money to clean up their act, and they didn't want to do it. They'd rather kill people with their pollution. Ed Gillespie gladly took $720,000 to make that case for them through all the different government agencies and Congress and all the rest. Mm -hmm. But what's worse than that is years later, he went to work for George Bush in the White House. Yep. And the topic of pollution came up again. Just, just and just time, to be clear, by the way, it's green energy actually. Uh, yeah, just, just to be clear, uh, it was George W. Bush uh, where he worked uh, under him as a as a counsel, uh, an attorney, right? A, a corporate counsel or something like that. I don't think he's an attorney. I think he's just a counselor to the president. Just an advisor Somebody that gives the president advice. Okay, so that uh, was uh, under advisor. George W. Bush, and uh, uh, prior years, I believe he had been the uh, Republican national uh, uh, the the chairman of the uh, RNC, RNC and so forth. Yeah. Sure. So now he's in the White House. He had been with the RNC. He had been taking hundreds of thousands from this uh, electric uh, power utility giant, Southern Company. And now he's in the White House working for George W. Bush. And press on, Mr. Stark. So the team at Sarah Blue went through White House uh, visitor logs. Mm-hmm. And we correlated White House visitor logs to what was happening in the news. And what we found out was that the CEO of a Southern company, mm-hmm. his name's David Radcliffe, he visited Dick Gillespie in the White House, I believe it was on December 6th mm-hmm. or December 5th, whichever it was. The very next day, the president promised a veto of renewable portfolio standards or renewable energy standards, RES, RPS. The House referred to it one way, the Senate the other way. But essentially what they are are mandates that electric power companies generate a certain percentage of their energy from renewable sources, Mm -hmm. wind, solar, even biomass was counted in this case. Well, the White House had, for the longest time, been kind of waffling 
well, we're not going to promise to veto it, but our advisors will recommend that the White House vetoes it. The day after Radcliffe met with Gillespie, um, the White House came out with an explicit veto. They said if it's included in the final legislation, the President of the United States will veto the bill. It will not be passed into law. And, of course, we didn't have enough, you know, for, uh, you know, to overcome a presidential veto or anything like that. So it killed, it had the effect of killing renewable portfolio standards in the energy bill that passed in, I believe it was 2007. And just to be, um, just, just to be clear, we don't know. You looked at the logs. You see this meeting with uh, Southern Company for whom, uh, for whom Ed Gillespie had worked. Uh, and then the next day, the White House comes out with this new position that they hadn't made. They could have made this threat uh, long before that, but they did it the day after the guy who used to work for Southern Company met with the CEO of Southern Company. Correct? The, the, yes. The, the, the former lobbyist of Southern Company. Now, I'm glad you also said the former chair of the RNC because, mm-hmm. you know, the part of the story we haven't looked at yet, our Southern Company's donations after that meeting. Mm. You know, what was agreed to in that meeting? How much did the Republican coffers get filled by Southern Company after that meeting? Right. You know, you know, this is all speculation, but, you know, this is D.C., and that's what people are allowed to do up here is speculate. Maybe a journalist <laughs> shouldn't as much as I am, but, you know, when there's this much smoke i'm definitely looking for fire well and it was not only the um uh not to use the smoke and fire uh, reference too much when we're talking about uh, southern company but there was also another incident that looked very much uh, the same that you reported on mike stark over at uh, share blue concerning citibank or a city group was he also ed gillespie also a lobbyist for that company as well Again, now I don't have my notes in front of me because I'm up on the hill today, so yep. I can't remember Nicholas's last name. But he was a lobbyist for Citigroup, and the day after he met with uh, Ed Gillespie, mm-hmm. they came out with a deal that um, essentially had the effect of preventing folks that had bought securities. If you remember the housing crisis, mm-hmm. uh, there were a whole bunch of mortgages packed into one bundle, mm-hmm. and then sold to investors. With the assurance that the mortgages were sound, that people were paying the bills, and that they would remain sound, and you know you could expect a certain return on that investment. Well, it turns out there were a bunch of bad mortgages packed into these uh, investment vehicles. Mm-hmm. And what happened with the White House is they came out in support of a bill that protected the banks from being sued by the investors that had bought these things. But what they said it was doing was helping homeowners. And in the end, nary a homeowner was helped. I I mean, they Mm -hmm. they set the standards. uh, The standards were so restrictive that, you know, this very, very tiny percentage of homeowners were able to take advantage of the program, which, you know, ultimately had the effect of freezing interest rates before they ballooned on, on their mortgages. So it's a little bit weedy, but again, the basic story is the same. Ed Gillespie is visited by a lobbyist from the company that Ed Gillespie used to lobby for. Yep. And the next day, the White House policy changes. 
And that was just before, since I had the advantage of having my notes in front of me while I know you're uh, standing outside the, uh, the the Capitol in Washington, D.C., uh, the guy's name, the, the lobbyist, was Nicholas Collio. Uh, Gillespie had worked for Citigroup as a lobbyist just three years earlier. And uh, of note here is this was November, late November of 2007. So we're talking really just months before the entire uh, housing market melted down when they're meeting with these uh, Citigroup lobbyists and, and uh, giving them the thumbs up, you know, regarding uh, mortgage bundling and everything else. All of this, Mike Stark, comes um, the, the background for this race in Virginia uh, prior to uh, 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 Terry McAuliffe, uh, the outgoing Democratic governor. We had Bob McDonald, uh, who was uh, he was the previous Republican governor of Virginia. And he was indicted and charged and found guilty of dozens of counts of corruption when he was uh, found to have received, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in gifts and even cash from a uh, from watches. His wife was giving thousand dollar dresses. Right. Uh, it was unbelievable. The gifts being bestowed upon uh, this governor and his family from a guy who sold some kind of wacky pharmaceutical product on talk radio or, right. it, you know, it, it was one of these fly by night. It, look, if it had happened in the 1890s or 1910s, it would have been called snake oil that right. this guy was selling. Yeah. And that was, and so the, I think it was like the first time in history that a, a, a Virginia governor had been charged with felonies like this. Now the Supreme court ultimately dismissed those guilty uh, uh, convictions. It was a landmark ruling very recently that narrowed the definition of bribery and quid pro quo and all of that. But given that very recent history, uh, why hasn't Gillespie's passed as a lobbyist, as a guy doing favor for these uh, big corporations? Why hasn't that been more of a, a of an issue among the media covering the race, or or has it been, uh, Mike? And it just hasn't gotten out uh, uh, nationally. You know, in honor of Clayton Kershaw's performance last night, I'm going to throw you a change up. Okay. We don't need to go to his history. We can just go to what he's doing today. Look, he filled out the NRA's questionnaire yeah. and made certain promises to the NRA. I have asked him to release his NRA questionnaire so that reporters can look at it, so that Virginia voters can look at it before they go to the polls. He will not tell Virginians what he promised the NRA to earn their endorsement. He just flat out will not release that questionnaire. He made promises. He won't tell us what they are. This is the slippery character yeah, go ahead. Gillespie is. He's just a very slippery... Look, he's got this droopy dog demeanor that makes him very, very likable. And he comes off as being very sincere until you see him say the same thing for the 10th time in a row with the same pause in the same place, with the same self-deprecating chuckle, timed exactly the same way you saw it 10 times before. Um well, that's that's all well and good, but who are, uh, you know, are the are, are the media pressing him on these issues that, that you're bringing up, that you're raising, that you're finding here? Are the Democrats, by the way, because I want to ask you about how the Democrats are responding to all of this. Are the Democrats adequately pressing him uh, on his, you know, his, his corporate ties? So I think, uh, yes, they are pressing him. They are calling him in on it. They are painting him as a corporate lobbyist that shows up for whoever pays him. But they aren't going into detail because I think you lose people in in detail when you're dealing with 60-second commercials and, stu- and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I'd say overall the campaign's doing an okay job of that. But, you know, after what happened in Las Vegas, I, I, I would definitely like to see more Democrats asking 
that NRA question at least. Yeah. You know, he talks after Charlottesville, another major, major incident here mm-hmm. in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, Ed Gillespie has made the tours saying he supports the monuments because their history. He doesn't want to take them down. He wants to add new monuments. All right. Well, that's the nice, slick, savvy answer of a Republican that's trying to split the baby. But look, Ed, why do you have George Allen on your campaign? George Allen is the Confederate flag and the uh, noose he keeps in his office. The same George Allen that was reported to have used the N-word constantly when he was a student at um, University of Virginia. Uh, is that same, is that the same George Allen who was uh, who who called a, who used a racial slur against a reporter? Cover, yeah, covering his his campaign. That's the same George Allen. He's the actually the chair. Of the uh, Gillespie campaign? Ed Gillespie campaign. Now, I've asked Ed, you know, if he had that conversation, he says he, he you know, he, he confronts with racism wherever he finds it. I asked Ed if he's confronted George Allen about it and how that discussion went. And what I get is thrown out of events. I get ignored uh, in parking lots. That's what I'm reduced to as a reporter is doing the only thing reporters can do, which is ask the questions. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so there's a lot of campaign events that happen at hotel rooms, uh, and it's a teachers' association. Well, teachers' associations are going to be asking things to the governor's office. So when a person that has a plausible chance of winning the governorship asks the association to have the reporter removed, that's what they do, and I have to go. And and, and that's what it's been like reporting on Ed Gillespie. Well, it has been very difficult. So you know. Thank you very much, Brad, for giving me a call and <laughs> well, you know, no, listen, letting me tell the story. You're doing, I, I think, obviously what reporters should be doing. You guys are digging into his record. You're trying to get him on, uh, you're trying to get comment on the record, uh, and it seems like he won't do it. You've got a lot of video up at uh, shareblue.com where you know, you're asking him questions and he is just completely ignoring you. So I guess he's ignoring you for a reason. I guess we need to talk about why he, uh, you know, what it is that he won't talk about. I've got just another minute or two here, Mike. Um, This is a big race. Uh, This is a bellwether for 2018. Uh, Has uh, where is Donald Trump on this? Has he endorsed? Has he shown support for Gillespie? Has he done uh, Gillespie the favor of saying mean things about Ralph Northam, the uh, Democratic candidate on Twitter? Uh, where is Donald Trump on this? We're just we're just a week out or so, a little over a week out from the election. It's a really funny situation. I think the two of them despise each other. I think Gillespie does not like Donald Trump. I don't think he likes Steve Bannon or Corey Stewart or any of the other rumpling of the uh, Republican Party. Uh, but he needs those votes. Mm-hmm. So there has been a lot of discussion in the local press about whether or not Trump will come and vote uh, campaign with Gillespie. Mm -hmm. And for the life of me, I can't figure out if Trump isn't coming because Gillespie doesn't want him here because he thinks Trump's a buffoon and just doesn't want to be associated with him. Or if Trump doesn't want to be associated with, you know, the stench of defeat. Mm -hmm. Trump's all about his image. He doesn't want to go through what he went through with Luther Strange in uh, Alabama again. Mm. So he may be avoiding Gillespie. It may be a mutual thing. It may be one or the other. I don't know. But it's a it's a it's kind of a comical situation. Well, here on the on the other side of the the coin, we've got a lot of Democrats now who seem to be very worried about this race. They're seeing the polls tightening. I mean, that's going to happen really, uh, you know, before any race. But 
Democrats have uh, seen some painful losses in recent months. So uh, I've already seen hand wringing from some of those Democrats over the campaign that Northam is running, that he's not reaching out to minorities enough, that the uh, the Democratic lieutenant governor uh, nominee, uh, African-American Justin Fairfax, has not received much support from the North uh, Northam campaign or from the uh, from the Democratic Party. Uh, Steve Phillips, writing over at The Nation this week, says that, uh, you know, maybe they were Democrats were spooked by last year's presidential campaign when they were accused of not reaching out to white middle class voters enough. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that, Mike Stark? Are Democrats focusing on this uh, on this race to the extent that they should? So I'm a reporter, not a uh, political tactician. But what I will say is. No amount of hand-wringing is too much hand-wringing. After the surprise we faced after uh, the last major election, after Hillary Clinton lost to uh, Donald Trump, I think maybe there wasn't enough hand-wringing going on there. Yeah, we should definitely be worried. And we should definitely be uh, looking to uh, drive turnout everywhere we can. The one thing I will say is that when you look at turnout in the primaries, um Republican primary versus Democratic primary, mm -hmm. it was about two to one in the Democrats' favor. Uh, it was Tom Perriello and uh, Ralph Northam, Northam won, mm -hmm. uh, and it was Corey Stewart and Ed Gillespie, and Gillespie just barely won. But their turnout was about half that of Democrats. So if that can be used as a barometer for enthusiasm, I think we can feel pretty good about this. But I'll tell you, uh, I, I encourage everyone to be wringing their hands. Make sure you get every one of your friends off to the polls if you live in Virginia and you support the Democrat. If your friends support the Republican, you know, offer them a trip to the Bahamas. <laughs> the uh, election for governor in Virginia is November 7. Uh, Mike Stark, I suspect, will be covering it between now and then and, and uh, probably afterwards. Uh, so we'll talk to you uh, some more, I hope, in, in the days ahead. Mike Stark, you can find his work at shareblue.com and follow him on the Twitters at Mike underscore Stark. Mike, great to talk to you, my friend. Uh, go back inside into the air conditioning in the Capitol Hill and uh, in the Capitol right, and give them hell. 60 degrees out here, 65 degrees. So oh, I'm just fine. Oh, that's Sorry right. about you guys? You're cold. We're sweltering. <laughs> I got it confused. Hey, thanks, Mike. Great talking to you. Hope to do it again soon. Take care. Bye. All right, a quick break and um, a quick story on this Bizarre situation in Puerto Rico. I'll explain after this break. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation, or even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. 
That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. How bizarre. How bizarre. How bizarre. It is bizarre. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Very bizarre story, uh, Desiree, on... What's going on in Puerto Rico? This company, this uh, whitefish company up in Montana has been given, what, 300, a contract for $300,000? $300 million. I'm sorry, $300 million? $300 yeah. million dollars for a two-year-old, two-person full-time employee company in Montana that is located in the hometown of Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke. And it's very strange because it does not seem to be, as far as we can tell, the federal government here that has hired this company that no one ever heard of that had two employees, you know, for $300 million to restore uh, power somehow to the island of Puerto Rico, which is still out uh, across something like 75 percent of the island. Um, but uh, so we're, 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 everyone's trying to figure out what the hell is going on there. We're still trying to figure it out. But amidst all of that, Wall Street Journal today reports that uh, federal officials supervising Puerto Rico's finances are installing an emergency manager at the island's public electric, uh, a public electric utility in an attempt to course correct a disaster response that has con- come under congressional scrutiny. Puerto Rico's Financial Oversight Board, this is a board that was created at the federal level to oversee the bankruptcy that um, Puerto Rico had filed, uh, Puerto Rico and the uh, the electric company there, the, uh, the island-owned electric company, PREPA, uh, board created at the federal level to oversee this bankruptcy prior to the storm, Uh, That board is now appointing an emergency manager to take over the public electricity monopoly known as PREPA with an eye towards its eventual privatization. According to The Wall Street Journal, according to people familiar with the matter, the maneuver would largely take control of the utility away from its own board of directors and Governor Ricardo Rosseo. More than a month after Hurricane Maria knocked out power to 100% of PREPA's customers, service has been restored to only about a quarter of them. And um, PREPA's contracting decisions in the wake of the storm, including its use of this tiny Montana-based firm to rebuild power lines, have raised concerns among members of Congress about the utilities management. So it was PREPA themselves who seemed to have hired this firm, Whitefish, seemingly, uh, as opposed to someone in uh, in Montana, you know, related to the Interior Secretary. Right. The the Interior Department has denied that the Secretary has any involvement. And and I asked uh, financial journalist David Dayan, friend of the show, um, via email what he thought of this. And he said, this is very bizarre, but hey, it doesn't necessarily require federal involvement. Government corruption, he said, uh, doesn't need the federal government to occur. Well, that's right. I mean, that can occur anywhere. And we had uh, Ramon Cruz. Cruz, a former Puerto Rico uh, power commissioner on the uh, on the show not long ago. He now serves as an advisor to the U.N. on climate issues and so forth. Uh, He talked about the corruption that was uh, prevalent at this agency at PREPA. So it's hard to figure out what is going on here. In truth, Uh, I reached out to Cruz uh, for comment on this to try to get some 
some idea what this is all about, this uh, imposition of an emergency manager. Usually I would be against such a thing. Look up at what, you know, how what happened up in Flint, Michigan yes. when this was done. Exactly. Uh, but here, uh, it's hard to know what to make of it. He, he uh, Ramon Cruz tells the broadcast that this decision is unfortunate. He said what Puerto Rico needs now is more transparency in the decision-making process about its future. Ideally, the decisions would be coordinated between the different agencies and would be good if it was done under the advice of a multi-stakeholder group. But right now it's only being done by this board that is overseeing and, and exactly. And nobody knows how this agreement came about. There hasn't been any public discussion about that. And uh, one of the things that Dan had also mentioned was nobody really knows where PREPA is getting the money to uh, front to Whitefish to, to do this To work. Whitefish, right. Yeah. So there's a lot of questions going on So there's the Whitefish thing going on, but then there's this other thing going right. on of the board who is overseeing PREPA who, who says wants- we're bringing in someone who has no oversight whatsoever to run the entire kit and caboodle. With the point of eventually privatizing it. And that is the concern. Yes. And uh, folks uh, say, as a matter of fact, I think Cruz had said that, uh, you know, parts of it are probably going to have to be privatized. That's the right thing, but not for the entire thing to be privatized. Cruz told me in his uh, comment in response that this would be much better a much better, uh, this would be much better rather than the decision taken by an unelected board, you know, to have a multi-stakeholder group make this decision. That would be much better than have an unelected board that have primarily PREPA's bondholders' interests first rather than the benefit of the people of Puerto Rico. So this is basically about the bondholders for PREPA, uh, at least according to Cruz. Making says, sure they get paid first. Yeah, has nothing to do with, you know, What's helping for- <laughs> the people of Puerto Rico. Yeah. Who still continue to struggle today, well over a month now after uh, Hurricane Maria made landfall uh, with some 75% of the island still without power. I can't even imagine what that must be like. All right, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Mike Stark of ShareBlue.com, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. You can uh, download uh, this show or any other anytime for free at Bradblog.com. But my thanks, as ever, to those who stop by Bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to try to do what we try to do every day over your public airwaves. For as long as we can. Yes, these are your public airwaves. Just the way PREPA is the public uh, utility down, it used to be in any event, down in uh, in Puerto Rico. You can drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. Did I mention bradblog.com slash donate? Yes. Good. All right. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.